Hi, babe. I have something for you. What is it? Just a little something. <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Disaster Artist. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. This is my movie, and this is my life. Hosted by Stuart. But you, man, you're like fearless, and I just, I, I want to feel that too. Jacob. Where in the hell did you meet a man like that? And Arnie. You have a malevolent presence. You are a perfect villain. I, I'm not Frankenstein. I'm a hero. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! Listener discretion is advised. Look, we'll talk about it later. I told you I'm very busy. I can't wait till later. I want to talk right now. Today we're discussing The Disaster Artist, starring James Franco, Dave Franco, Seth Rogen, directed by James Franco. This is your podcast, Master of Disaster, Arnie. Stuart? My name's Jacob with capital Go Away. <laughs> Happy New Year's, guys. Our last show of 2017 was reputedly the worst film ever made. How did that happen? We're here to discuss that with the disaster artist. Yeah, if that was a lump of coal, this one, I don't know, we're popping the champagne. This is a, at least at this point in recording, a Golden Globe nominee. The Oscar stuff hasn't come out, but this could be a potential award winner. Yeah, you would never think that anything that would come out of the room would ever win an Oscar, but this might do it, largely because of the determination to bring this to the screen by James Franco. He kind of does the Tommy Wiseau thing. He is going to both star and direct this but he didn't write it no this is based off of a tell-all that greg sestero he did have another writer with him I, he had a guy who did journalism and so i think greg sestero he's like here's all these stories and then you had a much more competent writer put it together and tell a pretty compelling story i like the way the disaster artist book is set up you get one chapter about greg and Tommy's relationship, and then a chapter about some crazy story of The Room being made. And apparently Franco read The Disaster Artist before he saw The Room. So he experienced The Room in a very different way than probably 99% of the planet do. Everyone sees The Room and then goes, how the hell do you make a movie that bad? And then maybe you pick up the book. I don't know how Franco heard of The Disaster Artist, but when he read it, he, I think, identified with the passion of the man trying to make this and said, yeah, I'm really into this character. Yeah, I do see James Franco. Like, sometimes I want to hate him, but sometimes he does something so crazy. It's kind of brilliant. Like, he'll do some bad movie like Why Him with Brian Cranston, and then he just turns around and does The Disaster Artist. It's someone who's hard to peg, just like Tommy. Yeah, James Franco... He's somebody that I had written off. I really became aware of him. I did watch like two episodes of Freaks and Geeks, but he never made an impression on me. It was the Spider-Man movies that brought him to my attention. I forgot he was in those. <laughs> yeah, me too. Again, I think there are so many James Francos. He serves so many different audiences yeah, there's the stoner dude, right? Pineapple Express. I never saw that one. I mean, I guess I'm more of the prestige film guy. Well, 127 Hours, Milk. These are the movies I know him for. These are the ones that he's got Oscar nominations for. And I think 
he's probably due. I mean, I felt like he got robbed on Spring Breakers, and that's oh. the film I forget he's in because he so got lost in a character. I forget that's James Franco. That is the only movie, and even including the Disaster Artist, Spring Breakers is the only movie where I can't see the Franco in Franco. It's where I finally was won over. Yeah, I always found Franco a little bit pretentious, particularly when you see the stuff he's making on his own. You're like, uh, this guy's trying too hard. He wants to be the new Nick Cage. But yeah, I love loved his take on Alien so much. I really, Spring Breakers, <laughs> he's everything in that movie. Yeah, I don't like that movie, but he's great in it. Yeah. And again, I think we see that he has a soft spot for delusional people that are looking for fame. That there is a real through line between maybe himself an alien of Spring Breakers, and Tommy Wiseau. He likes that guy. Yeah, I would hope there would be a love for Tommy, because I know we spent a lot of time last week bashing the room, making fun of Tommy, but I do find him compelling. Like you were saying, Stuart, he, he's a mirror. What does he say about American culture, if this is his interpretation of what it means to be an American? So I do have this affection for Tommy, and while I do think he, he's a dark character, based on the stories in the book, I also think there's something inspiring about him. And I so I wanted to see that complexity on film. Yeah, you mentioned that there was a homoerotic quality. That's another thing about Franco, is that he really got invested. He made several movies on his own about straight men homophobia. Basically, he, I think, made Milk and was like, why am I so repulsed by man-on-men sex when I like women-on-women sex and men-on-women sex? And he really just went through a phase where he was just making these movies, exploring homosexuality. He made one movie I saw, I think it was his directorial debut, Interior Leather Bar, which is a imagined behind-the-scenes look at Al Pacino's Cruising. I don't know if you know that film, but it's a really strange one mm-hmm. in Al Pacino's resume. And he, similar situation. Al Pacino, straight actor, was in a movie about hardcore leather bar scenes. He made this his directorial debut. And I see a through line between that movie and the movie we're here to discuss today. The look behind the scenes and characters trying to use art and filmmaking in particular to work through their psychological issues. I think that's another reason why he's drawn to Wiseau. The interviews I read beforehand, and I did try to stay pretty spoiler-free on this. I mean, not that there's much of a spoiler when it's a real-life story and I've seen the results of this. I know it's not going to end with him getting Oscar gold, but they saw it as a way to universalize the story of somebody with a Hollywood dream. And anybody who's ever had the dream of going to Hollywood and making it big and striking out on their own and giving it everything they've got, that they were trying to do that. But I came into this movie really really scared because I saw James Franco and we've said there's many James Francos but it was produced and also starring Seth Rogen and there's only one of him I mean they go back to freaks and geeks together I first became aware of Rogen because of 40 year old virgin and every single movie I've seen him in after that I hate him I know you have this hate for him I don't feel it I like when him and Frank are together in Freaks and Geeks. I mean, he's a stoner character, I feel like, in every comedy. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it's just, eh, whatever. I've seen this before. I don't think I've seen many. I saw This is the End. That was the apocalyptic one. Yeah, he's funny in that. I thought that one was just fine. And, you know, they did a parody of a very mockable Kanye West video that I thought they nailed pretty well. But I guess I don't know these two work. If we were doing a retrospective, maybe I could have some kind of anticipation about what they were going to 
do with the room and the Tommy Wiseau story. Not having those expectations, I think that Franco is perfect for looking at this guy as both a director and an actor. It would have been more fun if he did the full thing and, and also wrote it. But the screenwriters on this are guys that do romantic comedies. Fall in Our Stars, 500 Days of Summer, people that know how to tell human drama. But if you look at the producing group here, including James Weaver and Evan Goldberg, this last time this crew got together and made a movie, it was supposed to be so controversial. It was your American duty to watch it. <laughs> the movie Kim Jong-un wouldn't let you see the interview. And as soon as that came out on pay-per-view, I felt like I had to see this movie that was so controversial. It was giving the finger to Kim Jong-un. It was miserable. It was really unfunny. It was really just painful to watch. I would say this about Franco. I feel like he always has ambitions to do really weird, strange things. And yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea, right? Like that they're positioning themselves as assassins for a real life world dictator has all kinds of potential, but it doesn't surprise me that it turned out bad. I didn't see it, but I can imagine it going very wrong because I think Franco's ambition is oftentimes bigger than his ability to achieve. And that's kind of a why so trait. I mean, he's better than why so, but <laughs> I've seen some of his directorial efforts and I think that, yeah, he can be pretentious and trying too hard. Yeah, my fear was just coming into this that we wouldn't actually see a true biography picture, that we'd see the standard stoner tricks that happen when these two guys get together. And I, you may sound like I'm overplaying Rogan's role if you've seen the film and he's barely in it, but the fact that he had the producer credit and he was in the trailers and he's third build in the cast, I just went in a little bit cautious. I like Franco. I liked 127 Hours. I think Franco can give great performances. It just reminds me of a story about the two Corys. Like, if you got one Cory on their own, they would be okay. But if you got the two Corys together, that's when the real hard drugs came out. That's what I feel about Franco and Rogan. My worry wasn't that it was just Franco and Rogan. It just felt like, if you've heard of the podcast, How Did This Get Made? Another movie podcast. That entire crew is in this film. Paul Shear and Jason Manzukis, June Diane. This feels like a lot of Hollywood buddies getting together to make a movie about a movie they all like to joke around about. Oh, yeah. I've listened to several episodes of How Did This Get Made? They did one on The Room. I haven't listened to that episode. I usually listen to the ones for the movies I have seen. But yeah, there's a lot of them there. And this whole movie, I felt was like six degrees of Franco and Rogan because everybody in here, I'm like, hmm, Brian Cranston. Oh yeah, he was in Why Him with James Franco. And Zoe Deutsch is in here, who was the girlfriend in Why Him. And Judd Apatow, who gave both those guys their first jobs way back in Freaks and Geeks. And just everything is like, this person worked with him in this, and this person worked with him in that. That's not so unusual for independent filmmakers. Keep in mind, this is a rather small production. It's an indie film that has some mainstream potential. It's slowly rolling out over America. Took a while to come to Springfield even. But I, it's kind of strange that they made it at all. I mean, I think you need to have all of these connections and all of these marketing assets to sell the making of a movie that no one's ever heard of. I mean, this is always a tough sell most people that don't make movies or follow how movies are made 
don't want to see behind the scenes look at them. And here's my weird comparison for this one, because we've done The Aviator as a biopic, infamous show. I mean, but I think about a lot of those biopics. You know, we got Walk the Line with Johnny Cash. It's usually someone you know. But then I think about my favorite one. American Splendor, which is about a really an unknown comic book artist. So yeah, it's that behind the peak look at what it takes to make it in an industry, I think can be, even if it's an unknown, like Tommy Wiseau, who the vast majority of Americans do not know, I find that interesting. So yeah, what can you tell me again about the Hollywood system and about why this film was such a disaster when lots of bad movies get made? What made this one so bad? You know, but it's one thing to go behind the scenes of Citizen Kane, so, you know, Hitchcock. The room has been called the Citizen Kane of bad movies. <laughs> Be that as it may, everyone wonders how you make a wonderful piece of art. Nobody wonders how you make a piece of shit. This is a tougher <laughs> sell. And I do think, I was trying to think of other movies in this vein. Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie, is, you know, a profiling the worst film director reputedly of all time. Boogie Nights is kind of showing some very naive people that are trying to make art, but really they're making porno. American movie, if you saw a documentary version of it. Yes. Coven, these hapless guys trying to make a witch movie. It's rare to see people in this perspective. Losers failing is a less interesting story often than people succeeding. Even Bowfinger kind of had that because they thought they were making something great. And when all is said and done, they're making really schlocky films. And that's what they go on to do at the end. So they weren't making great films. And I imagine Chubby Rain is not that much different from The Room. (laughs) I wonder if this is generational too. My theater was packed. I went opening night. I had to drive to a college town because it wasn't here in Springfield. And I could barely get a seat. I was by decades the oldest person in the crowd. It was a highly enthusiastic 18 to 22 year old audience. Yeah, I, it was hard for me to see my crowd. I, I just figured they're around my same age, but it was a packed theater. I mean, it's LA. I would expect that more for this kind of movie. I didn't have to drive hours to go see it, which was nice. But yeah, it is a younger crowd. Yeah, 20 to 40 year olds. And I, of course, had a very different experience. I also had to drive hours to see it because it didn't come to Springfield. It did come to several cities a couple hours away. I also went to Champaign, a college town. For some reason, I usually think that this is something reserved for effects films and things. <laughs> you saw it in IMAX, didn't you? I oh. saw it in IMAX. <laughs> this has got to be part of the joke. I do feel like that's an inside joke that they're going to release it on IMAX screens. Tommy has been threatening for years that he's going to do a 3D version of the room, convert <laughs> it all. So I do feel like, yeah, let's do this big prestigious format for this little indie film. It's in the vein of the, the room and its ambitions. It is, but the filmmaker can't decide let's go IMAX. IMAX is a corporation that says, yes, we'll allow your film and they control what movies are on what screens for how many weeks. So the fact that the IMAX corporation said, yes, let's take this film and do it. And I know some people have thoughts of whether or not they're going to see films in 3D or whether or not they're going to see films in IMAX. If the movie's in IMAX, I'm going to see it in IMAX, period. It's just bigger, it's crisper, it's got better sound. And so when I found out it was in IMAX, I went. I went on a Sunday morning. Mm. Eight people in the theater. (laughs) Sunday morning, even. I mean, yeah, the primary target audience is not even out of bed yet for the matinee (laughs) and Sunday. Yeah, they're still hungover, yeah. (laughs) But I reserved seats a few days in advance thinking, oh, I have to drive hours to see this. Other people will be driving hours to see this. No, eight people total. And all 
30s or 40s. I didn't see anybody distinctly older or younger. It was mostly couples and then two individuals there on their own. Having also seen the midnight movie experience of The Room, I wondered if there was going to be participation. Would people bring spoons and throw it at the moment where that comes up? I feel like these guys do go to those screenings. My audience probably had participated at one point, but they weren't sure. You know, you sensed a lot of hesitation of, was this movie going to live up? You know, they all love The Room could this movie hope to be nearly as funny? Yeah, I don't think anybody, the other six people in the audience had spoons. No. I did turn to my wife and said, dang it, we should have brought spoons to throw at the screen. (laughs) All right, Arnie. So give them the plot. We can get into The Disaster Artist. The Disaster Artist tells of two friends, Tommy Wiseau, played by James Franco, and 19-year-old Greg Sestero, played by Dave Franco. The two meet in an acting class in San Francisco, and Tommy's off-the-wall performance of Streetcar Named Desire appeals to reserved Greg, who cannot express himself. The two become friends, and Tommy suggests they move to Los Angeles together, where he already has an apartment. Greg doesn't know where Tommy's from, how Tommy has so much money, or really anything about the accented, long-haired wannabe, but for his chance at stardom, Greg agrees, despite his mother's objections. In Los Angeles, Greg gets an agent and a girlfriend named Amber, played by Allison Brie. Tommy seems a bit put off by this relationship. But when Tommy is told with finality by Judd Apatow that his acting career won't happen, he decides to write his own script, The Room. He plans to finance this himself to the tune of $6 million, and he and Greg will star in it. They buy their equipment and hire a professional crew, including script supervisor Sandy Chaclair, played by Seth Rogen, and director of photography Raphael Smaja, played by Paul Shearer. Only those two seem to be able to realize the debacle the film is becoming, but their paycheck's clear, so they put up with Tommy, who becomes even more eccentric and demanding. Things worsen between Tommy and Greg when Greg decides to move in with Amber, and Tommy acts jealous. Tommy even seems to retaliate when he refuses to give Greg a day off so he can go film a part for Malcolm in the Middle. The film is finished, but the friendship is destroyed. Greg and Amber break up, and Greg stays in L.A. acting on stage, but Tommy finishes the film and uses his own money for a grand premiere. He convinces Greg to go, which he does, but to Tommy's horror, his film is not met with the dramatic feelings, but with gales of uproarious laughter at the inept film. But the laughter in itself is an emotion, and the crowd gives Tommy a standing ovation, which he accepts as credits roll. In order to get this movie started, I we all know that, yes, people are probably going to go see it if it gets award consideration, or maybe they listen to this podcast and they want to know what the hell we're talking about this week. <laughs> but by and large, this movie will be discovered a year from now when people are streaming and like, what the hell is this? And they're going to give it about two minutes. I guess the thought is, if you throw a lot of famous faces J.J. Abrams, Kristen Bell, Danny McBride, that that somehow will make this story more appealing. Totally unnecessary, but I guess it's a way to get people hooked into something that they probably otherwise don't know about. This whole opening scene kind of put me off. Again, this feels like an incestuous film crew, like just all buds in Hollywood. And that's how this opening feels, where they're talking about, oh, this great film that they wish they could have been a part of. You know, Adam Scott. Yeah, I know you wish you weren't in Hellraiser Bloodline. You would have rather been in the room. But I feel like (laughs) if you're trying to sell this, if this is here to sell this to an audience not familiar with the movie, well, at the end, we're going to see side-by-side comparisons, again, which feels a little self-congratulatory. But why not open up with some scenes from the room to 
set that mood, to set that expectation, to get people into this, to know what they're in for. I think that what this does, it sets the stage for what the room is. Showing just a few scenes of the room isn't enough. If you showed me clips of the room... I don't think that I'd be able to appreciate the true mess it is. You have to watch the room. So if you can't force people to sit down and watch the room and you want them able to appreciate the mess that is coming, this is like one of those movies that you see somebody get shot and then you flash back and the first half of the film is leading up to them getting shot and then the movie picks up. This is everyone saying the room is a great bad movie so that you know where it's going to go so that the uninitiated because this movie can't only play to people who saw the room. Right. That would be way too cult and they spent 10 million on this film so they want to make their money back this here has famous people faces that you may be familiar with this is a way to set the stage for what is to come right but the movie really gets going when we get past all of this san francisco acting class 1998 this is where i really feel like franco knows this world you know he struggled to be an actor himself to start in this way waiting for godot or gato uh, it's just perfect that we have a play <laughs> about two people waiting around for something to happen to them it's also going to be the story about two people waiting for stardom to happen to them and we're introduced first to Greg, played by Dave Franco. We talked about James Franco, but how much do you guys know his brother? Not at all. Yeah, I've seen him in a few things. I couldn't name him off the top of my head, though. I first saw him. I loved the TV show Scrubs. If you guys have seen that, Zach Braff. And at a certain point, it jumped networks over to ABC and lost most of its cast and became Scrubs the Next Generation. And... Marjorie and I watched every episode, and I'm like, there's something about this actor. He just seems really familiar when he smiles. And it was Dave Franco, but when he smiles, he had James Franco's smiles and mannerisms. And so that's where I first saw him. And I've seen him in quite a few movies. We did review him. He was in Fright Night, but he was also one of the bad guys in 21 Jump Street. And he was in The Neighbors, Now You See Me Too. So I've seen him in quite a few movies he just keeps showing up and i'm like wow he really made a career for himself and this is his first time really working with james because he didn't want to be seen as riding his brother's coattails he wanted to make a career for himself and this was the first time he felt like he'd made enough of himself that he could go work on this and the surprise maybe it shouldn't be because he's an entry point character but this is his movie James Franco is the magic E.T. that comes down and changes Greg's life, that Dave Franco is the star. Yeah, and that is true of the Disaster Artist book. It's really about Greg, except for when they're making the movie. That's all the stuff on Tommy. But it's really his story about running into Tommy, trying to make it in Hollywood. And there's some interesting stuff. Like, if you want to know, don't try to become an actor. Like, it's almost impossible, and it sounds horrible based on this book, going to these acting classes. And it's much harsher in the book, like the feedback they get. But yeah, Tommy is this mysterious character in the shadows for the first part of the book that he just meets through these acting classes. And it's really, the first part of it's really focusing on Greg. Yeah, I found it very interesting that they choose not to show us Franco's face initially. He's the one who's ready to express himself. I've seen the room. I know he's more than ready to express himself. <laughs> I just do it. 
<laughs> he comes up on stage and I notice the camera swirling around him and he's reminding me. I don't know if you guys know the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, the band. Yes. Oh, not, not just the music, but the <laughs> band. I've seen them perform live twice and they are these hair metal rockers who have this kind of hair and keep it over their faces and it just... How many belts do they wear? <laughs> yeah, I think they might wear a few and they've got accents too. So it's just this really weird thing where they're doing the camera sweep and the black hair covering his face. I'm like, we all know James Franco. What are you trying to hide? But they did some prosthetics and things. He really looks like Tommy Wiseau, both in magazines and at the end of the credits when they do some of the side-by-sides. I have trouble telling what's real and what's Memorex. Yeah, I really studied his face. They did something with his forehead, his nose, his chin. Every once in a while, he'll have that droopy eyelid that Tommy has. You said $10 million budget on this. I think a lot of that went into these prosthetics. They really went out of their way to make him look like Tommy. And everything is hinging on this, right? I mean, if you saw the room, you know that 90% of the laughs come from the fact that Wiseau is living it. You know, like he's the real thing trying to sell this hoary melodrama. And it's not the same thing for actors to try and recreate that. You got to be really good in order to channel what Tommy brings to the screen. I'm going to say it. James Franco is really good in this role. It is the most delightful performance I can think of seeing this year. There might be better acting. There might be more nuanced parts. But I think that this is the most fun I've had watching an actor this year. Yeah, for all my problems with how they're going to frame this story, because I think it could have been much more interesting than ultimately what they do. I don't have any complaints about James Franco's portrayal of Tommy. Like, I was smiling. I was laughing. I was waiting for him to say certain lines because I like Tommy. Like, the last two weeks we've been doing The Room of the Disaster Artist, I've just been watching YouTube videos of him, interviews, stuff he's done. He's a delight to watch because he is such a bizarre character. It's, it's nice to have a bit of weirdness in your life. When I said I could see James Franco in this role, when I could see the actor behind the mask, it's primarily when he smiles. I feel like James Franco has this certain squinty face scrunching smile that I first noticed back in the Spider-Man days, and he's used a lot in his stoner films. That comes out a few times, but honestly, for knowing James Franco, and I watched 127 hours, and the whole movie I'm thinking about, how's James Franco gonna get out? Not remembering his character's name. Here, I lost both James and Dave to becoming Tommy and Greg. It's easy to forget their brothers, especially since there's going to be a weird pseudo love story that if their brothers is really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that is something they underline here is they're going to keep them a, mostly a mystery. I mean, that was one thing I was wondering last week was how revelatory was this going to be? How much are they going to be able to tell me something about Tommy that I wouldn't have speculated? The answer is not much. By choice, they have decided to make him more mythic. This is a character who's whole essence is that I'm mercurial. You can never get a hold of me. I am beyond your laws of physics, really. And so I can blow into this acting class. I can disrupt this diner. My emotions are me. And that's all we'll know. Again, this is what most people are going to come to see to know what is the story of the room. I don't know how many people are going to go and read the book or really kind of do a deep dive like I've been doing. Even in the book, they propose a backstory for Tommy, like piecing little clues together. And they portray it in that mythic sense. Like there was a boy. They never say it was Tommy. It was just that story kind of shifts 
shifts throughout the book because there's always new information coming up. You think of Heath Ledger's The Joker and The Dark Knight, how he's always changing his origin story. I feel like they could have done something like that. Interesting because, you know, Tommy Wiseau, that's not his real name. Wiseau is a French derivative of Bird because he was Tommy the Birdman when he was selling little bird toys in San Francisco. I wanted to see a little bit of a human side of Tommy because everyone makes fun of Tommy, but I don't want it to feel that way in the movie. I do want it to be insightful. I did some more reading after seeing this movie because when we talked about The Room last week, the question was, where does Tommy get his money? How did he get this film funded? Where does he come from? And that he intentionally wouldn't answer these questions. And so I think because Tommy won't tell you these things, you have to leave him more ephemeral in this film. You can't lock him down because you're not going to find out the facts. But there were some private investigators that did some digging and found that he was born in Poland in the 50s and became a naturalized U.S. citizen in the 80s. And they found that by looking through the name Wiso. So I think that is his birth name, his Polish name. But he came here, he wanted to be thought of as American. And he finally admitted when confronted with this, he said, yes, I grew up in Europe, but that was a long time ago. I'm an American now, and that's what I want to focus on. Yeah, he'll just say Europe. He'll never say Poland or whatever Eastern European country some people have speculated he's from. Yeah, he just says Europe. And we still don't know, though, where the hell this man got so much money. And so that is still questionable as to how you could even make him the main character without details. If you can't find out about someone, how can you make them the main character of the movie? By making it about Greg, A, since he wrote the book, and B, since he's an open book. You know where he came from. You know what he's done that there's not that much to hide. Here's my problem with Greg. I don't know what the deals are when you buy rights to the book or rights to a person's life story. I'm sure they don't want to offend him. But if Tommy is this crazy blind ambition of American capitalism, like I could just throw money and make any movie I want. Greg is conniving that he is latched onto Tommy after the room became this phenomenon. You know, I talked about an alleged original script that came out because Greg was going around just selling it at midnight screenings. So I feel like this is a guy who's a bit of a leech and has taken this misfortune of being in the room and try to capitalize on it. And I just don't think he is the greatest guy. I think Tommy's more interesting. I Greg has a dark side, which I just don't feel like they get to in this movie. No, they want him to make him an everyman, a relatable person. You never have any thought that he's a weirdo. You need to have the straight man because God knows James Franco is so damn big here. The conflicts that I see are that Greg, we see in his acting performance, he's so withdrawn and shut down that he's not able to express himself and thus he can't be an actor. Melanie Griffith appears in a cameo as an acting teacher and she's like, you got to show people who you are (laughs) or there's nobody that's going to care. Melanie Griffith as an acting teacher is like Kevin Bacon as a financial advisor. These people are not (laughs) suited for that role. She's been nominated for Oscars. I won't disagree. Most of her work is not very impressive, but it is fun to spot the star cameo throughout this movie. It's one of the games. Oh, there's so many of them, yeah. Yeah, but Greg says the reason why he got into acting is... Home Alone, that he wanted to be Macaulay Culkin. And presumably, you know, we see that he was raised by a single mother. We presume that on some level he is looking for father approval. Maybe that's the role that Tommy is fulfilling. And in the book, he does portray his mother as very overbearing. She sabotages potential movie roles he could get by talking bad to different agents that he had. So we'll we'll see just a little glimpse when Tommy comes to pick up Greg to take him to L.A. That, That whole scene is straight out of the book. Like, if you're 19 
17. I'm 14. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> so much fun and watch. Again, he's a magical character. I, you just want to see him walk into every situation and disarm people because he can disarm everyone. He's so weird. You just don't even know what to say or do. I mean, I love Melanie Griffith's response to his version <laughs> of Streetcar. I mean, thank you for that. Yeah, and the mother, Megan Mullally, most known for Will and Grace, but of course was in Why Him as well. And she was actually really good in Why Him. But I did like what I read that in the book or in real life, one of the things the mother also said is, please don't have sex with my son. Yes. And you get that sense. You picked up on it watching the movie. It's kind of there when you see things like Denny jumping in the bed with Johnny in the room. Yeah, you get the sense that there are weird boundaries between the male characters. But here, they're going to make it overt that this is going to be a story of jealousy that for Tommy, it seems to be there's something that he deeply admires about this baby face kid. Maybe it's just the loss of youth. Tommy is middle-aged. He wishes he could have the beginnings that our handsome young Greg has. I also think it's just Greg's a friend to him. What's weird to me, where are the women that Tommy has been with? Like, wouldn't someone come out and go, yes, I am the real Lisa. And there has been nothing like that, which feels very strange. Where are these stories, these personal friends of his? I don't see it coming out anywhere. So I do think, oh, here is someone that will be my friend. That is an appeal to Tommy because I don't know if he has that. Again, in the book, there's that Chloe character who we see as the casting director in the room. She is some old, in real life, an old woman in a wheelchair that he would talk to and try to speak with an American accent. She'd try to coach him. And he just put her name on there as like, because she's a friend. But where are these close contacts coming out and trying to capitalize off this movie? Well, as far as the women go... Tommy Wiseau has had one movie. I don't know that the women would really want to come out and say, yeah, I've been with that. But here's something that I just can't get a beat on because we don't know anything about Tommy's real life and it's not shown in this movie. We don't know his orientation. We don't see boyfriends. We don't see girlfriends. And I think you could read this relationship with Greg a couple different ways. Greg asks if you have an apartment in L.A. Because we find out Tommy not only has an apartment in San Francisco, but one in L.A. He drives a Mercedes. And he's got a giant key ring. I think he's got an apartment everywhere. I thought he was a janitor. (laughs) Yeah, in the book, it's revealed that he owns a lot of properties in San Francisco. I just think that when asked, why haven't you gone there before? He said, I didn't have a friend to do it with. I really believe that because I went to New York for New Year's 1999, but I wouldn't have done it if a friend hadn't gone with me. I wouldn't have done that alone. There's just certain things that you don't want to take alone. You don't want to do these journeys alone. You don't want to feel alone. And I get the feeling that despite being middle-aged, the way it comes off here is that Tommy's never had a friend. It's a real talent of James Franco that this doesn't feel creepy. I mean, this is kind of the start of a thriller, right? Single white female or something. I'm going to take over your identity. Talent and Mr. Ripley, they did call it out in the film. I didn't think they would. Exactly. There's the perfect analog. And I never, ever feel a lecherous vibe off of it because of James Franco. When he's singing Never Gonna Give You Up, the Rick Astley hit from the 80s, it feels sweet. I laugh. I do not cringe. I do not worry for Greg. Greg will be better off hanging out with Tommy. I guess I wanted a little bit more of that dark side. Again, the book, there are some times where Tommy does feel very dangerous and like this could go very wrong. This movie, it's more about the celebration. It's about, look, here's this great character 
character who made this disastrous movie that everyone has come to love. It's brought joy to so many people. Let's lionize that. Let's celebrate that. And, and, and it's not the challenging biopic that you might expect of Howard Hughes or J. Edgar Hoover. That would be a problem if I was looking for a drama, but I think this is a comedy. I think in just about every scene, I am smiling or laughing about something. I mean, I think it's just a joy to watch this Franco-Weezo merger happen on screen. Here's what I noticed in the film when I really started to break it down, though. The first 45 minutes of the film, just under half, is really not that funny. There is the scene of Tommy throwing himself around, Stella! And there's the scene of them making a goof of themselves in the restaurant. And there's a few Megan Mullally lines, but it's not laugh out loud funny. My audience was pretty muted during that time. It's when later on they start making the movie that this becomes honestly laugh out loud funny. But the scene that Tommy hits his lowest, he's alone at a fancy restaurant for dinner, and he sees Mr. Big Producer Man, who I didn't recognize. Yeah, I didn't know what Judd Apatow looked no. like, so I didn't realize that was him. <laughs> I love he's out on a date, and the date says, what do you think of the new Star Wars movie? Oh, it's not very good, but Jar Jar was funny. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much about this restaurant scene that felt true, the way the waiters conduct themselves. Again, I'm going to just call myself out. I'm biased towards liking this movie because it's nailing so much about L.A. life correctly. There are so many producers that conduct themselves in public like Judd Apatow is in the scene. I don't think he's playing himself. He's playing anonymous big shot, but it's a good portrayal. I think he's playing himself because I read that his agent started getting flooded because he was ad-libbing the lines. And when he says, call this person at this agency, that's actually Apatow's agent at that agency. He gave real names and information, but... You gotta think this happens in Hollywood. People don't just know the stars. If you're working hard to get in, you're learning who the behind-the-scenes people are, and if you see them in a restaurant, God, it's gotta be horrible that people would just come up to you and do this. But I love Apatow's line to the hostess, he got through two fucking acts of Hamlet before you did something. And <laughs> That is a good line. <laughs> to see Tommy doing to be or not to be, and this is where it is. It's like... I love this line. I mean, it's just, just because you want it doesn't mean it can happen. And I think that's a universal message. You know, we as Americans are trained, if you want it, if you work hard for it, if you have the drive, I think that's every sports and soda ad. Anyone could be president of the United States. Mm -hmm. But what he says is a cold dose of reality. Just because you want it doesn't mean it can happen. It's one in a million, even if you have Brando's talent. It's not going to happen. And not in a million years. But after that? <laughs> you know, this is also a way that powerful people can tell themselves how special they are, too. That they are one in a million. I mean, it goes both ways. But yes, you're absolutely right. We always cling to the dream. And then at some point, reality comes crashing back to us. And here it comes very publicly for poor Tommy. Yeah, I found myself chuckling because I'm like, oh man, I remember this scene in the book. This is funny. I know it's coming up. But yeah, it's weird to, again, having read the book where they kind of jump around, this is straight chronological and it feels like, okay, we got to get to the making of the room. That's what people want. I guess maybe it's all about your sense of humor. I bet most comedies I love aren't laugh out loud funny. I think I avoid pratfalls and farce. 
I like the more situational, uncomfortable humor. And that's what I'm getting here. That you're just seeing someone, he's very comfortable in his own skin, but it makes everyone else so uncomfortable. And I love scenes too, like when Greg, he goes to get this agent. I think it's Sharon Stone playing the agent and she comes in and like plays with his hair and it, it just seems real creepy and sexual. Like, yeah, it's not laugh out loud, but I, I, I'm digging that vibe of just, yeah, mocking Hollywood. And she's playing a real agent. I did look this up. She's playing Iris Burton, who apparently was a big agent before she died of like Alzheimer's not too long after this. So you think maybe the reason she stopped returning his calls, she literally forgot to ever call him. But no, that's an agent's life. I mean, that's what they do. They get you and then you'd never hear from them. That is the life of an actor. But it does look promising that he gets in there. It is, again, maybe not entirely laugh out loud, but when they're getting headshots and Greg's are pretty standard headshots, you know, they tell him he needs to have one with a goofy look. And then you see Tommy's and it's, I was thinking he was posing for like a Fabio romance novel <laughs> cover with the fan blowing and he's on all fours. What, you trying to blow me away? Yeah, he just has a different sense about what cool is. You know, like his idea is like, I think he's trying to be Michael Jackson most of the time. I mean, it's just, and no one wanted to be Michael Jackson in 1998, but like that to him was still cool. He has a very strange compass on what he should be even going after. And yeah, the scene where he's asked to drop his accent and then he does, I guess, a brando <laughs> but it still has the eastern european inflection yeah just i again i think every scene is delightful i am so on james franco's side and i i like the idea that greg could learn a lot from him that he's not put off by it in these early scenes that even though he is embarrassing in a nightclub doing his dance the rhythm of the night he always wants to be by his side and be his friend yeah i, I want to buy this soundtrack but i think i own the soundtrack <laughs> And it's that bar scene. I feel like this is where they start really trying to play up the drama of this love triangle that we'll see played out in the room. We're going to get introduced to future girlfriend Amber, who's a bartender, and we see Tommy getting jealous as babyface, as he calls Greg. Whenever he's jealous of him, he starts calling him names. And that's true in the book, too. Like, that jealous side comes out, and he starts getting very vindictive. But this is kind of your standard drama, and they're going to try to, like, go, oh, look, this is what inspired him to write this weird love triangle. Yeah, that's what you need to see i mean if the idea is how would anyone come up with the room we want to see it happen in reality first and thus it's all laid out here i have to believe that amber is a literary conceit of the screenwriters there probably were several girlfriends there's no way there was this one girl that shepherded this project through the five years of it coming to the screen in the book, there is a girlfriend, but again, Tommy has said the disaster artist is only 40% true, and, and I do feel like Greg has taken some liberties with the story here. Amber is the voice of reason. She will be the one to say, is this what you want to do, Greg? I mean, do you want to make sure you want to be involved with this guy? I mean, she's thinking the thoughts out loud that we would be if we were in this situation. Yeah, the movie's very good about giving us the audience viewpoint, starting with Amber Allison Brie community and then later on we're going to get it through a couple different people on the set but there's always like a Greek chorus there that's going to comment on what's going on. A lot of this is Hollywood inside baseball and I really tried to think if that movie did play in Springfield would there be jokes they wouldn't get? Would there be things they don't know about agents and agencies and producers and 
acting classes that I've done a lot of reading up and know a lot of people who've gone through it, but it may not play to everyone. You gotta have that voice. And I think she does do that here. As for the love triangle, all I know is that I have had friends who would get girlfriends and disappear and then they'd break up and come back. And when they disappear, I felt like shit. Like, I don't know how to read it if it's like, there is that uncomfortable joke where they get to the LA apartment and Greg's like, you only have one bed. And Tommy says, you don't want to sleep in the same bed as me? Ha ha ha, you should have seen your face. It's hmm. like, um, I don't know which way that's going. But you could read this either way as a jilted friend who doesn't want to lose his only friend, maybe in his life, to the friend going off and spending time with a girl. Or if it's in fact an actual love triangle. They draw on Hollywood legend with that. The sexual ambiguity is also true of their idol, James Dean. These were things always circulated about his personal life. And I think that, you know, this is a man that wants to be James Dean. James Dean died in an automobile accident. They visit that crash site. I believe it's a true story when Tommy says that it was a car crash that got him to change his priorities. Whatever he was doing to make his money, he dropped all of that to pursue this Hollywood thing. That felt like a true moment. Yeah, that's from the book, too. I think that did happen, that Tommy, again, I've never had a near-death experience, but I got to imagine that changes you, that your priorities change. And yeah, with Tommy, again, who maybe saw himself as an outsider to America, this is the way I could prove I'm real American by becoming a movie star. Yeah, and that's a great moment. I don't think, you know, you mentioned it last week, Jacob, but I don't think that people would necessarily make the connection between James Dean and Tommy Wiseau so heavily <laughs> if we didn't see them watching Rebel Without a Cause and seeing that moment where you're tearing me apart, where it really came from. That was a big laugh out loud moment for the audience. Everyone was like, oh, I didn't realize that that's where tearing me apart came from. See, my audience laughed when they went to the car wreck site and Tommy said, someday this be us. And Greg's like, I hope we're not dead on the side of the road. <laughs> yes, indeed. But here's the thing. He wants to be James Dean. Hollywood is telling him, you're a villain. And that's Tommy's central conflict. He goes and he takes the Stanislavski class where there's like, yeah, you can be Caliban, you can be Frankenstein, you can be Dracula, but you can never be James Dean. Yeah, I, lo I love Bob Odenkirk here as the director for the acting class. I always enjoy him as a comedic actor. And he's giving good advice. I mean, he is being mm. earnest. He says, I'm giving you a shortcut to success. If all Tommy wanted to do was be famous, there's nothing wrong with being a Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta figure, Stuart, maybe you have some insight, but like, I think of like a John C. Riley. like, how do you look like John C. Riley and go, I'm gonna go to Hollywood <laughs> and be an actor. You're never gonna be a leading man. I gotta think that actors, certain actors, they accept that they are not leading material. They're going to be a character actor. They're going to be a villainous actor because of how they look. Being aware of how you come across is a key to any actor. I just would put it out there. It's the thing I hear about all the time. I gave up those dreams in childhood, but I had many actor friends in LA and they talked about, look, you just have to get over it. You're vain in other ways, but you do not worry that people consider you, quote, the ugly guy, the fat girl or whatever. You embrace that that's what it is and then you try to find those roles and you go for those roles. And I agree. It feels like very good advice. This guy is telling him of saying, hey, you can do this. It's no problem. But Tommy doesn't want to be a star. He wants to be a planet. 
He wants to have <laughs> a much bigger cosmology surrounding him. And so, yeah, he ultimately stumbles upon the idea, with the help of Greg, that he has to make his own film in order to portray himself the way he wants to be seen. I will say it's a little ironic, like the few acting roles that Tommy Wiseau has had since The Room, like Samurai Cop 2, he does play the villain. Mm, does he? He works. I didn't realize that. Not a whole lot, but yeah, he's him and Greg are actually coming out with a movie supposedly next year. There's a trailer for it called Best Friends with the R in parentheses, so it's Best Fiends, Best Friends. Yeah, it's being funded by the studio that made Birdemic. I've seen Birdemic. The, the trailer looks interesting. Yeah, it's not high art, but it looks better than The Room. Yeah, I mean, it was what I was thinking, too, that Tommy has this gothic, scary Tim Burton hero, maybe, but he even gets it, too. Like, when he's writing The Room, when he says, okay, I'm going to do this, we get a montage of eating ramen noodles and working out and typing on an old typewriter. He even floats the idea of maybe Johnny is vampire. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That that was just funny because he was told to play a vampire. But wasn't that actually an idea, didn't you say, Jacob? Yeah, that's been a rumor floating around in that alleged original script. The rooftop scene with Chris R. Like, Tommy flies up there with his car and uses his vampire powers to defeat Chris R. Again, I don't know if that was written after the fact by Greg, but it's in there. There's rumors are out there. It was an idea that must have come out at some point in the creative process. <laughs> you know that this guy is crazy enough to baby try it. He's capable of trying anything. And I think that's why Greg agrees to do the movie. He knows it's bad, right? When he reads the script, I think he can, you know, just read those lines and know, oh, this is really bad, but I'm touched that you would give me a co-starring role. I'm touched that I finally can have a break, even if it's in the crap. Well, here's the weird thing that they left out of the movie, which I think would have been fascinating to show. Greg was not hired to be an actor originally. He was going to be a line producer, whatever that is. Greg didn't even know what that was when he got hired to do it. And... Tommy's going to end up firing all the original actors, replacing them, switching roles around. We never see that in this movie. It's there in the book. But I feel like Greg, like, look, the best role he had before The Room was Retro Puppet Master. And so, yeah, the fact, hey, Tommy's going to pay me a check. I need money to live in L.A. Why not go along with this as long as those checks are clearing? And... I couldn't tell from Dave Franco's performance, or really any of the actors' performance, if they knew exactly how bad what they're in is. When Dave Franco is saying, you want me to star with you, it feels like he's actually touched. It's like he can't realize, and maybe he just hasn't read enough scripts to be able to tell a good one from a bad one. But when reading it, I never get the impression he knows he's in a disaster. That's for his girlfriend to tell him. Yeah, no, I think the conceit of the movie is that Greg was excited about all this. And again, that book, maybe Greg writing it in hindsight, oh, this movie's so awful, I gotta make people believe that I knew how bad it was gonna be. But the movie, at least, it shows him excited about this and wanting to go along with Tommy. The way I took it, and just from the performance, I haven't read The Disaster Artist, what I saw was in the cafe, he's made a set, and read it in one sitting. He repeats the dumb lines. He kind of knows it's bad. He doesn't know it's going to be the disaster because no one would even predict it from the script. Things get so much worse when you see all the <laughs> other choices that are made. More on that to come. But I think ultimately, you know, many people have terrible scripts and you agree to do your friend's project knowing it's not going to be very good. But I want the experience. You know, actors just want to be on camera. And the fact that he's being offered a major role, that this is good for his reel. No matter how good the movie ends up being or anyone sees it it's good to have on your resume i was in a feature film 
And this is where things really start to snowball and move quickly because I don't know why Tommy took so long to come to this idea. If he had all this money, a banker is going to break all kinds of privacy laws and say that his bank account is a <laughs> bottomless pit. If he has all this money, you'd think he'd have gotten to this. I think it's Greg. I feel like he knew secretly he wasn't enough to sell a movie, that, that he needed a, a baby face in order to sell this. That he isn't James Dean as much as he tries. In the book, at least, it feels like, yeah, it was that friendship with Greg. He saw Greg being successful, and it was that jealousy that drove him. He got that retro puppet master role, and I haven't been able to get a role setting out all my headshots, so I'm just going to make my own movie. I could be better than Hollywood. Here, it, it does seem weird. It's just like, okay, let's just do this finally. You say he needs a baby face, but the thing that I think would be hardest to cast in this movie, quite honestly, is a woman to get naked in bed with him and to let it appear like he's having sex while putting her breasts on camera, which we know he found an actress to do in real life. And here, the casting, the line is down the block with women dying to be in this movie. Oh, they've said they kept every headshot, Tommy kept every headshot, and they looked at thousands. Greg says like over 5,000. He's like, I didn't realize how many starving actors there were in LA until we went to cast this film. You can get a lot of talent if it works for their schedule. You'd be surprised of the level of quality a film can be and who you can get if it just works out for them. Actors just want to be on screen. And I'm not going to say that they don't care what kind of movie they're in, but on some level, they'll do it because they're addicted. And I think we'll even see a character say that. Your worst day on set is better than your best day not on set. I think that that is very true for a lot of actors. But we see them get the equipment, and this is something that we've talked about. I didn't realize that studios didn't own their own equipment, that everybody rents. But Tommy's got the paycheck. He's going to buy, and I love it. It's like the guys don't even know what to do when somebody wants to buy equipment. Yeah, it's undone. I mean, Panavision does not sell equipment. I mean, I mentioned that last week. This was the sh most shocking detail about the room, was that he was able to buy Panavision cameras and digital cameras and shoot side by side. I mean, this is this is the scene for me as someone that studied film that just, it's forehead slapping. You can see why Hannibal Burris and this other guy are just going to jump on this. That is real on the room DVD extras they have you know we'll see in the movie the disaster artist someone's just walking around doing behind the scenes video they show some of that footage as DVD extras and they show that rig that is a real rig they built with those two cameras <laughs> they do explain like how insane this is like well you have to light them differently I do like that they explain that to lay audiences that wouldn't get how crazy it is to use digital and film yeah at the end of the day I do feel like this movie is pretty inside and maybe the reason why I'm enjoying it so much is because on on some level, it reflects a world that I've traveled in as well. Maybe not everyone is going to find that relatable, but I do think everyone's going to find this cast of characters amusing once we see the film come together. This is where the real stars come in and do their cameo bits. I did love the casting for the Lisa role. That's probably my favorite scene when I laugh the most. You're riding a horse and someone comes into the room. <laughs> And you're talking to them and you're licking the ice cream and it's melting and it's just like, but it's not a porno. <laughs> yeah. And just, I feel at some point they realize they have the power to do this. And like, I'd start fucking with people too. You know, it's like in coming to America, bark like a dog, hop on one foot. Yeah. Do it like Shakespeare. <laughs> 
But what's also impressive is that some of these actresses nail it. Shakespeare, but sexy, she does read the line. She does. She does nail it, yes. <laughs> she nailed it. I would have hired her. She was so good. But the one who argues, like, I'm not going to do this. What the hell is this? Oh, they hire her. Yeah, I would say of all the wax work, if you're going to look at this movie as like who looks the most like, I don't feel like this Lisa, I don't really know this actress, but she was on that terrible Showtime stand-up comedy show. I'm dying up here. I don't know if it was after Twin Peaks, I would watch five minutes and turn it off. I liked it. But she's the least one that's like the character she's playing, I would say. When I said I couldn't tell the difference between the two when they did them side by side, if Lisa was in the photos, I could tell. She doesn't look like Lisa. Honestly, Tommy Wiseau hired a more attractive woman to play Lisa than is playing fake Lisa in this film. And she really adds nothing to the movie. I think... What happens here is that through the people who sold them the camera, they not only got able to use their studios, but they also got two experienced people who are going to be played by Seth Rogen as the script supervisor and director of photography, Paul Shearer. And these guys are going to be like the Statford and Waldorf of this entire production. They're going to be the ones who realize everything that's going on is absolutely wrong. I mean, Tommy won't even give the script supervisor the script. And I think this is smart just from a storytelling standpoint. Again, if a lot of people aren't on the inside with filmmaking, they don't know how a film gets put together. So to have these guys commenting on how crazy this production and wait, I'm supposed to have a script on the script supervisor and I only have like two pages that helps the audience who may not be on the inside get how insane the room was. Not only that, but I, you know, filmmaking is collaborative. When you see the room, you're like, how did they let him make these choices? This were several people agreeing to light a film this way to act this way you're seeing that a lot of the creative decisions ultimately fall on tommy that this movie is a reflection more than anybody else of his worldview and his passion and emotions and i want to say that paul Shear, i primarily know him from those vh1 i love the 70s yes. i love the <laughs> 80s shows and seth rogan i've said my piece on him they're used perfectly here. Seth Rogen is not overused. He doesn't really have a character to play. He can just do these one-liner quips. I guess I really like him in small supporting roles, like (laughs) 40-year-old virgin in here. Just, you were talking, Jacob, about people who can never be a leading man. Never try to make Seth Rogen a leading man, especially in an action film like Green Hornet. Just don't do it. Oh, I forgot about that so bad. I'll say the same with Paul Shear, though, but he surprised me. Like, he'll get a scene later on where he flips out on Tommy and like I just know that guy is being a funny yeah commentator on VH1 shows and doing that podcast like they're able to bring some dimension here and it's not just again I thought oh is this just going to be a jokey movie because we're all fans of the room but no I think they do bring in their skills as actors and to tell a story here my favorite casting though it's my favorite character in the room Denny yeah I mean come on Josh Hutcherson we always said it during the Hunger Games yeah PETA we know that he's older but he looks like a child so he's the perfect choice for playing a 26 year old who's told to play at his age at 15 years old and yeah he really the wig everything about this it's the first day of shooting what's supposed to be a 40 days and and one of the funny running jokes is how the day one of 40 becomes day 50 of 40 day 60 of 40 and so on and the first day of shooting after getting all the setup tommy and greg show up and 
epic starts playing by Faith No More and because they're going to film an epic or is it because of the lyrics you want it all but you can't have it yeah I think that all goes in there I, I think also I mean look a lot of people thought Faith No More were a Red Hot Chili Peppers ripoff when Red Hot Chili Peppers were a good thing back then so I, yeah I think there's some meta acknowledgement there it, it's deep it's levels like onion just like the room <laughs> and again playing seven degrees of the producers here from the neighbor, Zach Efron is Chris R. I did not recognize him as Chris R. That's not him. That is not him in the scene that they film. It is. No way. Marjorie turned to me and said, that's Zach Efron during that scene. God. I mean, we see that it's filmed in the alley. We know in the final cut, it's on the rooftop. Didn't you say that somebody walked off the set? Yeah, they originally filmed this in the alley. And then Tommy's like, no, much more dramatic if it's on the roof. And they're like, well, we got to see if we could get Chris R back. They didn't have, you know, me underwears guy, Mike. He was originally in that scene. He wasn't available. So like, yeah, it messed everything up. But keep in mind, they're really simplifying the filming here. They're not going to show us what we found out last week about the firing of, like Jacob said, the fire. Firing of the stars isn't in here. The firing of the crew isn't in here. The moving of the scene from the alley to the roof isn't in here. I thought the same thing. I'm like, that scene didn't take place in an alley. And I Watch the DVD extras. They show the original filming of that scene. And in the real life, it was the same actor who was Chris R. in both scenes as they shot him. All right, fair enough. He is like Monster, acting his real life. <laughs> and I did love Seth Rogen. Why are we shooting on a set of an alley? Why don't we just go outside where there's a real alley that looks just like this? Because this is real Hollywood movie. Yeah. I see that mentality, though. Like, it would almost be better if he wanted that artificiality. Like, if he looked at old musicals and he didn't want reality. He wanted surreality. And so he wanted sets. You're giving him way more credit than I think Tommy is capable of. <laughs> yeah, I, it's clear he's out of his depth here. We know from the get-go, even if we haven't seen The Room, this is going to be a very bad film. There will be no saving it. But I do think you see in the early scenes how Greg and Tommy are helping each other. That Greg, on his first scene, is really not doing a good job. Not that he does a great job at the end, but he at <laughs> least gets aggressive. He gets into character, even if it's overacting. It's fun to see him dangle Pete over the edge because of what Tommy tells and likewise, after how many? 174 takes? <laughs> Just 67, which is an exaggeration. That famous, I did not hit a scene on the rooftop. I mean, it took about 35 takes, I believe. I did not. I hit her. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> that is a true story that they gave him like a water bottle to tr like to help him focus and channel his energy because he could not keep eye lines. He couldn't hit his marks. He couldn't do anything. They're like, well, maybe if you give him something to play with in his hands, that will help him like focus on something. And again, I'm finding Seth Rogen funny. He's like, all right, here we go again, but with a bottle. <laughs> and, <laughs> but yeah, they are helping each other. They're feeding off each other's energy. I mean, they did the pinky swear. We're in this together. And despite the fact that it's Tommy funding everything and Tommy directing, producing all of this, it does feel like Greg is an equal creative impulse the way it's sold in The Disaster Artist, the movie. Yeah, it's really the woman It's the, that comes between them that is making the parallels between real life and the room really heightened here, that we're going to find out that Amber is still in the picture again. 
can't be real, but is there at the pool on days that they're not filming and saying, you know, this, you're better than this movie, you know, this, maybe you can get it scrubbed from your IMDb credits. I do think that ultimately what they're trying to tell you here is that there's this jealousy, whether it be a real woman or just the thing that's taking Greg away from Tommy that is causing him to write this story and be so passionate about telling it. There's a scene because of Amber that like Greg has a chance to get a real role. This is not in the book. This is not true. As far as I could tell, they run into Brian Cranston at Cantor's, which look, if you want to run into movie stars, Cantor's in Hollywood is a good place to hang out. I will say that. But yeah, he gets a little role in Malcolm in the Middle and he has to keep that beard. And this is why Tommy made him shave for that tuxedo entrance scene. All right. I looked this up. This was my biggest question. I knew Franco and Cranston were in Why Him together, and I'm like, okay, did this really happen? Was he in Malcolm in the Middle? The timeline is right. No, this is not based on any reality. This was added because James Franco just thought it would be funny to have Brian Cranston playing himself back in his Malcolm in the Middle days when he was nothing but a broad comedian is what he was seen as. And the real reason that Greg didn't want to shave his beard. There was a fight about the beard, but the real reason was Greg kept thinking, this movie's going wrong, and if I have this beard, I could just shave it off after the movie, and then I could just not be associated with it by my face. If they make me shave the beard for the movie, then everybody's going to see me. Yeah, I don't want to hear the truth. I want. I like the idea that we're following the fable. It serves the purpose of this love story and this, you know, love triangle that we're sticking to these jealousy storylines. Yeah, if you're sticking to a narrative as you would expect in a movie like this about friends and they, they got to have, you know, a rom-com, you have that moment where there's that tension. And so, okay, yeah, add that scene where Tommy gets jealous because there is dark stuff in The Disaster Artist where, like, again, they go to Talon and Mr. Ripley and Greg's friends are like, Tommy is Matt Damon. He's going to kill you. <laughs> so there is that darkness. And you see that again on the set of The Room during that sex scene with James Franco's Tommy walking around with a sock over his dick. And I found this to be really incredible. Franco could not break character from Tommy while he was filming. Franco was directing using the Tommy mannerisms and the Tommy voice because if he didn't, he'd lose it and he couldn't bring it back when it became time to film. And so the crew, the real crew is discussing like at times Franco would be yelling cut. They're like, is this Tommy yelling cut in the movie or is this James Franco in Tommy's voice telling us to actually cut? <laughs> and so when he came out with the cock sock, that was all pretty much unscripted. He stayed behind the entire crew set up. All the other cast was there. Nobody saw James Franco as the director until he walked out wearing nothing but a ball sack. Yeah, I think my favorite laugh of the entire movie is when he's going to, all right, let's film this sex scene. And the poor Lisa actress is like, can I play a little Alicia Keys? And he's like, we don't support other artists here. <laughs> that is from the book, too. And so is that scene. Again, it's not during the sex scene. It's during a different one. But how Tommy would humiliate Lisa 
the actress, but she got zits on her back. Makeup, instead of like quietly taking her over to makeup to have that covered up, he would scream and yell. They said he was very controlling with Lisa. It was weird. It was like this incestuous relationship because as a director actor, he's acting like a father and daughter, but then they're playing lovers on screen. Yeah, and of course, what I'm laughing at is not the fact that he's abusing her. That's actually the darkest moment in the movie. But yeah, just the idea that he is so, yeah, he, there can be no other artist brought in here. It is only his vision. You can't even play mood music which any scene where you're having sex you're going to have a closed set with minimal crew and you're going to make the actors feel as comfortable as possible because that reads that translates in the film otherwise you end up with sex scenes like the ones we have in the room and like we said last week Seth Rogen's like is he screwing her belly button he does know where the vagina is right and the way he's like we must show my ass to make this big movie <laughs> yeah that's the marketing tool I have to be making <laughs> just the revulsion and as the scene alludes to he demanded the whole cast be there for filming of every second of this movie which again Stuart you can attest to this that's crazy you just have people show up when they're on set because you got to pay them but he was paying for everyone to stand around and watch scenes they weren't even in yeah the costume designer is not even get, he's grabbing things off the rack <laughs> that don't even match she's doing nothing but telling him please let me take a photograph for continuity no I mean yeah you, again this is a Tommy show everyone is there but they are puppets being orchestrated around following his emotional whims and yeah this is one of the darker moments he's reacting to the fact at least the way that's scripted here is that Greg is telling him I'm moving out Amber is taking him away and he has that freak out outside the Mexican restaurant and I love that you know he's so full of rage he's destroying these newspaper machines and it just ends ow I hurt my foot <laughs> yeah he's, he's great in this movie again things that other actors things that Carrot Top or Adam Sandler would do that I would just be like oh that's so hokey I mean it's all about the way that you present it and because I love this Tommy so much this creation of Tommy by James Franco he can do anything again I totally get why a movie like The Room could happen because you just let him do what he's got to do you just give him the floor yeah and he continues to go dark like he refuses to have air conditioning on this again <laughs> those lights get so hot Claudette's gonna pass out I love the little speech Claudette gives at one point like this is the only role that actress has ever done in The Room and but yeah you know it's better to be like this nobody actor than real life like I think there is a Hollywood mentality for some. Yet they're keeping Tommy sympathetic. You know, it would be real easy to make him the villain the way that it's suggested, but we see him at night. He's still got that videographer going around documenting everything, and he's hearing what people are saying about him, and it's hurting his feelings, but he's trying to put on a brave face. He's coming off like an asshole, but he's trying to not let it get to him. And it finally all blows up during that sex scene. And that's where Paul Shearer really does have a dramatic moment where he gets fired. And then they're like, at the end, am I fired or not? You know, I thought this would be the scene because of what we talked about last week, where Tommy fires the entire crew and then we bring in the next crew, but they're not going to do that. But it makes it so that you can still stay on Tommy's side. If everybody wasn't already picking on him the way he feels that they are, then it would be real easy just to hate this guy. 
I think the only time they flirt with me turning on him is when he just won't let him off for a day for Malcolm in the middle. I mean, you really want Greg. It sounds like a dumb role. It would not be a stairway to great success, but it would be something credible for his resume. And the fact that Tommy, you know, who's in the middle of filming his death scene to boot, is just so narcissistic that he will not change the schedule and allow his co-star to have that moment. It feels cruel. Well, and they also make it seem like Tommy fires, ultimately fires Sandy and Raphael when they go up to San Francisco. He won't answer the question when Greg asked, did you fire them? Now, in the book, Sandy, like, left the production. He had a chance to go work with Spielberg, cinematographer who won Oscars for, like, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. Janusz Kaminski, yeah. Yeah, so he's like, why would I stay with you when I have a chance to work with this guy? Right. No one can blame anyone for bailing on this movie. It's a testament to how desperate or how dedicated all these people are that they showed up day after day on hot sets with, yeah, no water. And you do feel for Tommy in all this. You know, he does. You're right. They're gossiping about him. But, of course, we would be talking shit about him if we were on this set. I mean, nothing that's being said is untrue. But, yeah, because of James Franco and, I suppose, Wiseau himself, we just keep hoping that they stay dedicated to him. Because we stay dedicated to him and we have this i guess the breakup scene is when they go back to where they originally first met and film stuff in san francisco the football stuff is this true it's all overdubbed in the room you don't know what they're saying but (laughs) they would have you believe that it's actually a fight while they're throwing the football around yeah again i feel like they're doing this for narrative beats in a movie in the book when they go to san francisco this is where greg realizes oh tommy owns all these properties in san francisco why didn't we shoot on the roof of an apartment building he owned he talks about the gorilla production shooting without permits like there was tense like at this point greg was just like can we finish this film please i don't want to do this anymore i feel like because the book is non-chronological you're able to still have those narrative beats but here they're telling the chronological story so they got to shift things around and you know he turns it on them they got the cameras on him and he's like all right time for you to get real you want me to be real this is the moment that they could have told us where does your money come from how old are you where did were you born all of that stuff I think it's the right choice that we never know. They could have told us. They probably do know. Uh, Tommy Wiseau is going to end up in this movie at the end. He probably could have shared this information. I think he endorsed this production. Yeah, no, 99.9% great. Only problem, the lighting was a little off at the beginning. (laughs) I love James Franco's response. He's like, I'll tell my DP to go watch the room to get some tips on lighting. (laughs) Yeah, I saw Franco. He's like, well, the problem is you're always wearing your sunglasses. Take them off. (laughs) I heard that he wanted Johnny Depp over James Franco, but, you know, it's, it's a fair trade. He got a good one. Yeah, I've read that this isn't really what happened between Greg and Tommy, that they didn't have a falling out at the end of shooting, that they didn't have this breakup that's going to be, God, it's like the end of When Harry Met Sally, when they have the big fight, and then it ends on New Year's Eve when Harry comes and makes up. I mean, apparently what happened was Tommy was actually just really busy editing the films and in post-production and everything, and Greg was getting on with life, and there was never this showing up outside where he works like a stalker and saying, will you come to premiere? No, but it works for the narrative. I mean, again, I am not looking for answers. This movie told me early on, I'm not going to give you insight. That's not the standard at this point. It's, you know, am I still having fun? Do I want to see these two patch it up? And what will it be like 
to come together for a premiere of a movie like this. Yeah, and this is true. Like, Tommy had the limo circle the theater because he's like, wait, we need more photographers, more people out there. Somehow he was able to pack that first screening of the room. Yeah, well, I mean, there were billboards. And again, they were all over when I arrived in L.A. in 2005. Two years later, those billboards were still promoting, come to this screening, come to that. This is a sensation. I mean, he had the money. He made up all the poll quotes. Modern day Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Did they still have his telephone number on it? Because that was apparently his real phone number. They used the real phone number in the movie. I'm just tempted to call it. Well, no, I heard James Franco was answering the phone number. Oh. So I don't know. Maybe call it and he'll do an intro for the show. Hi, we for hotline for The Room. For scheduling of The Room, please go to www.theroommovie.com for merchandising go to tommywiseau.com t-o-m-m-y-w-i-s-e-a-u or www.theroommovie.com thank you for your support enjoy the room and we see you at the screening of the room keep in mind with a special screening of the room go to www.theroommovie.com and if you like to screen the room please send us email contact is on our website, theroommovie.com. Thank you very much. Support. Enjoy the room. Now, that is the original recording that you got, if you call that number. For the Disaster Artist, they mimicked that poster of Tommy Wiseau, but there's a different number. I don't know if you could look that one up and call it. It's a different message. I'm looking now. All right, I think I found it. It was on Twitter. Hi, Wiseau. For calling. Wow, so many great things happening. Movie out, disaster artist, Golden Globe nomination, who know? Tuxedo and football <laughs> on that carpet. New <laughs> message, very busy. Ah, Franco wins. I think his is more fun. I think so too. Although, if you go to TommyYSO.com, when you buy the room, you can actually get a free pair of Tommy Wiseau underwear. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I do know on the DVD, they show this behind-the-scenes footage, and they're like, yeah, if you want more footage, here's a P.O. box to send a request to. So, I don't know. Maybe we could get some exclusive behind-the-scenes footage from the original room filming. I bet Tommy would do an interview. It's all a question of money. <laughs> But the premiere, they do have everybody there who was involved, despite how big an asshole Tommy was. The DP, the script supervisor, all the actors are there for their big Hollywood moments. I mean, the DP and the script supervisor actually had work before, and the costume designer, all these people that came because they bought the cameras, they probably should have known to stay away. It's the actors who really wanted their big break and decided to take this. And so, yes, we get everybody together again. Zach Efron's back, Josh Hutcherson. Yeah, you never know how it's going to be. So my face is going to be giant on the screen. That's usually enough to get people you know to show up to a premiere. Your agents, potential clients, uh, all that stuff. That People circle these kinds of things looking for new talent. And this is the scene, really, that nails it, that this is going to be a celebration of the room because I feel like I'm watching the producers at one point, like, as springtime for Hitler breaks out because people walked out. Greg walked out in the first five minutes because he couldn't watch those sex scenes. And the theater that Tommy rented to show this for two weeks so he could get an Oscar nomination, well, they had to put up a sign, no refunds because so many people were demanding their money back. <laughs> the way they depicted in the film, it was like an instant cult hit. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
know, it, it, it takes a moment. It's a slow dawn. Like at first, you're just smiling because like, oh, there's me. There's that. I remember all of this. It's flooding back at you. It takes them a little while to be like, this isn't good, is it? You know, it really isn't until tearing me apart. I would think it would come much earlier that the laughter would come. But when he finally delivers tearing me apart, the line from the room, that's when everyone is given permission to just go ahead and enjoy this as a laugh riot. I still do love the actress who played Lisa during the sex scenes covering her face. And then there's the sex scene with Mike later. She's like, it's still going on. And then I'm like, I'm remembering the room. I'm like, this is just the first half hour. Yeah, I thought her best moment was when Denny jumps in bed with them and her friend turns and goes, what's their relationship again? She just has a face that says it all. <laughs> because that's the question everyone has watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they picked the choice moments to relive the room. If you didn't rewatch the room with us last week, this one is going to be the greatest hits moments of just why it is so wild and crazy. And but all refilmed by the actors in this movie, which gives it a little bit of a charm. It feels like a little road show. But at the end of the day, this is a buddy movie. It's a bromance. Maybe it's more than a bromance. I don't know. But it's about Tommy and Greg coming together. And so, yeah, it's mentioned the fact that Greg, Amber left him. He's with another girl. That didn't work out. But he still has Tommy. And at the end of the day, that they do for each other what they did on the set that Tommy storms out of the screening thinking you know no one understands him and it takes Greg to point out they understand you and they love you you're not the villain yeah and they get to stand up there I knew that this couldn't be an immediate laugh riot that they would accept I mean Tommy would have to I believe spend years before he'd be like I intended comedy but to just play it like that you're right I'm judging this because it's a biopic, and one thing I do after every biopic that I watch is immediately look up the reality. I just watched Get On Up, the James Brown thing, and then immediately looked up what really happened, because I want veracity in my biopics, but this is a movie, it's a comedy, and you're right, everything you say is being done for narrative reasons that isn't reality is exactly that, including this ending. It's a feel-good ending, because it's like they said at the beginning, who's talking about the film that won the Oscar 10 years ago, but everybody's still going to see The Room? It's still sold out screenings. The film's made a profit. Yeah, that is all, I think, handled in the right way. We end with them together up enjoying some kind of response. It does convey to those that don't know that this thing isn't a bomb. It, yeah, that people throw spoons. I don't think we even explain why they throw spoons, but there is a <laughs> framed photograph of a spoon in Lisa's place. And so every time it appears on screen, that's when you throw the spoon. Stuart, there are so many things where you get a chance to explain in that last film. Like Again, I could have gone for hours. Yeah, but that one's a particularly weird one. I mean, the fact that Greg... And I was shocked they didn't bring this up. I feel like they wanted to be nice to Greg because he owned the rights to this. But if you watch The Room, he's always wearing his jeans during the sex scenes because he did not want to get naked. He was too uncomfortable during them. But here, they were going to make Greg look like the good guy, the secure guy, the one that helped Tommy. Yeah. Credits come. We get Rhythm of the Night. We get side-by-side -side comparisons. I almost feel like they could have held back on this for the DVD or the Blu-ray. Yeah. Again, self-congratulatory is how I feel. Like, look how much we matched this crazy movie. Here's Franco's demo reel for the Oscar. But we do have to see the real Wiseau against Franco Wiseau, right? I heard he was showing up in this, and he hadn't yet, so I knew I had to stick around for the credits. It was a contractual obligation when they went to Wiseau and said, we want to tell your life story. He's like, I must be in it. 
in scene opposite Franco. Mm. <laughs> it is one of the funniest scenes. And James Franco had never met Wiseau. He'd had some phone conversations with him, but this was like the first time they were ever going to meet face to face. And apparently on the ride down, Wiseau started texting him a photo of himself with like a drawn on mustache. Like, I think I should have mustache. You want me to Sharpie <laughs> it on? And <laughs> Franco's like, no, no, we have people here. They'll give you your mustache. <laughs> they film the scene. It is very funny to see dueling Tommies, but I think it's right to make it the end stinger because it would have been too distracting in the film. Yeah, there's no, nar- it doesn't make any narrative sense. It's just a funny skit. No. Yeah, he has a name. He's credited as Henry, but that means nothing. And yeah, it is just so that we can see how good Franco is at emulating this guy. He's really good. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Disaster Artist? Jacob. My instincts, because I have gone so deep into the Tommy Wiseau story, would be for a more dramatic movie, exploring the dark side, more of a cultural studies. What does Tommy Wiseau say about America? What does... The fact that such an awful movie can become this cultural phenomenon, say, about America. Like, that is what I want to explore. This movie's not that. And that's fine. This is a celebration. And I could go with that because, yeah, The Room brings me happiness. The last two weeks, as I've just been going off the deep end, exploring every facet of Tommy Wiseau of the making of this movie, I, I feel a little sad that it's over now, that it's going to go away because it's just with the family repeating lines and doing the hand motions, everything. That's fun. So I feel like this is a great cap to something that does bring joy to people's lives. It's a comedy. It's a rom-com, really, when you get down to it. And as a comedy, yeah, it's successful. If you don't want to read the book, this is going to give you insight into how insane the production was for that movie and just what a mystery and enigma that Tommy Wiseau is. I, I think James Franco is great. Again, my instincts would be to do this a little bit differently, but for what this is as a comedy, yes, it works. I recommend the disaster artist. Stuart. Yeah, I would characterize it as a fable. A fable about the importance of showing who you are to the universe and in the face of all negative opinion. And it's an important lesson in this day and age, particularly if you go on social media, you will get a lot of negativity thrown at you for anything that you try to put out there. That we have someone magical enough to transcend that and not care that he makes something so awful that everyone will hate him for it is kind of a, a miracle in and of itself. I think it's probably good that this movie stays light and funny. I, a dramatic version might be interesting, but it might be overstretching the importance of the room, as far as I'm concerned. This is exactly the movie it needed to be to be the perfect companion piece to that terrible film. If you want to know how it happened, the blow by blow, I think you get everything you need to in this movie. And it's just a delightful bromance. I mean, I definitely feel like I really enjoy watching the Franco brothers play off of one another. This is really, again, my favorite feel-good performance of the year and one of the best comedies, anyway, about what it is to make a movie. It's right up there with Ed Wood, and I highly recommend it. If you're going to see The Room, you should see The Disaster Artist, too. I agree, but you know what I like about The Disaster Artist is you don't have to have seen The Room. I think they made that a wise choice. You can just... You know, I never saw Chubby Rain, but I got Bowfinger, you know? I never saw the movie in Get Shorty, but I saw Get Shorty. And I think the disaster artist plays in that way. They show us enough, and by making it a comedy, we're able to laugh at it enough that you can get it. 
Of course, if you know the room, it's even better because you can expect the lines coming, you know? Oh, hi, Mark. You know, all that. It's just, it's better if you've seen it. It embellishes it, but it's not a prerequisite. And I agree with you, Stuart. Making this a comedy is the right way to go because when people think of the room, they think of laughter. Yeah. And you don't want to take that and suddenly be tears of a clown and that this is always so dramatic and make people feel bad for their laughter and their enjoyment of the room. If you made this a serious drama, everybody's going to walk out of there and feel like they were bullying Tommy when they threw the spoons. You know what I'm saying? And you want to keep it in the vein of what you're mocking. I think that this walks a great line between drama and comedy, but certainly overall, it is a comedy. And it's one I really like. I have liked the Franco brothers from time to time in various roles. I think they do play very well together. And I forget their brothers. I really do. I thought of them as Greg and Tommy. I didn't think of them as Dave and James. And everybody else is kind of peripheral. You know, no matter who you give third billing to, people float in and out of the orbit here. It's Greg and Tommy's movie. But to a T, it's really good. And I will be very disappointed if Franco isn't again nominated when the Oscars come out. And, you know, for his snub in Spring Breakers and then his good performance here, you know, most people have to wait till they're 60 to get the career appreciation role. But I think Franco might deserve it. I think he's going to get it this Sunday when the Golden Globes run out, but that's because they break up acting between comedy and drama. There's no way the Oscars are going to give a comedic performance over a dramatic performance. I hear it's Gary Oldman's to lose, but yeah, I think he should be nominated. And again, I, I think one of the reasons why it works is this movie doesn't just mock the room. It also celebrates Tommy too, that there is a message there about being yourself that I think is applicable to everyone. Yeah, so if you can't tell, I do give this a recommend, and I don't regret driving three and a half hours round trip to see it, I think. I had a much better time at this movie than I expected to have, and it's one of the best films I've seen this year. Agreed. But will it be even better? Now that we're in 2018, we got a whole slate of things coming. I guess we could tell people what it is uh, we have in the weeks coming ahead. Uh, Insidious? The Last Key opens this weekend. We will be covering that Marjorie, Arnie, and I will be begrudgingly going back to theaters to cover the fourth installment. You love it, right? You've loved all these. I solidly recommended one, and I almost recommended the third one. And I recommended two. <laughs> oh my god. So, I've given the Insidious franchise more green arrows than the Conjuring franchise. I'm not actually afraid of this. They all blur to me. I don't sinister Conjuring Insidious. It's all the same thing, right? Yeah, Insidious has Lin Shay, so that's immediately better. But then after that, our patrons know this, our donors know this, and if you've been stalking our schedule, you might know this, but we are starting the Now Playing Arcade. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Dude. Put another quarter in the coin-op, baby, because <laughs> every video game, whether it's uh, created for the Game Boy, your PC, or something for the internet the kids today love that I don't understand, like Minecraft, we are going to be covering it. We had to take a break from the Stephen King franchise. We'd like to be diving back into that realm, but it part two is it coming out, and we need that to come out before we can go forward. So instead, we got a year of looking at cinematic video game history. Oh boy, you thought the room was bad. Yeah, that will begin. We're going to try to follow 
game creation order. So the chronology of video games themselves, we're going to start with the coin ops. There is a wonderful documentary, I don't mind spoiling, recommend King of Kong. It is a look at the coin op classics, Galaga, Miss Pac-Man, and of course Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. We're going to be kicking the retrospective off with the King of Kong. And then in the weeks to come, Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> Double Dragon, <laughs> Oh, two Street Fighters. There's some theatrical trips, too. We're going to be doing the three Tomb Raider movies leading up to this new theatrical one. There's Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Not quite a video game movie, but we're going to throw it in. Why not? Rampage. <laughs> the coin out now is a Dwayne Johnson family film or something. Mm, and- it looks like a sequel to that earthquake movie yeah san andreas he spends a lot of time in a helicopter i don't know what it's going to be and i don't know that i'm going to love a lot of these movies but i do like many of these games and i do think it will be an interesting thing to study how symbiotic the relationship between video games and cinema have been in the last 20 years i mean you loved all those resident evils right so it's just a continuation of that i it hopefully will not be a continuation of quality <laughs> in that but i suspect there will be one or two clunkers along the way that will be fun to mock and who knows maybe some good films as well So that starts in two weeks. We hope you will grab your joystick, put in a quarter, and join us for King of Kong, Super Mario Brothers, and so on. It's going to be quite a year with a lot of requested films. I know there's been a lot of requests for the Mortal Kombat films. I know I've brought up Wing Commander many times. Yeah, I think after Real Genius, Wing Commander is your number two go-to film. Not in a positive way. Well, no, but you bring it up a lot. I haven't seen many of these films, and so that will be a discovery. I feel like I'm now back on a retrospective where I know nothing. Uh, We'll see if I'm better for that. And you probably want to remain that way. (laughs) Yeah, it's nothing can be helped, but there are films on that list that I've heard disputed as good. Warcraft is loved by international audiences, and I kind of remember liking the first 10 minutes of Silent Hill. There's some U-Bowl stuff in here. Yeah, that will definitely be mockable. I can't imagine U-Bowl will get a green arrow, but he might get some browns. Yeah, no, those are just going to eat your quarters. He won't get any gameplay. <laughs> I'm just going to hope that he offers to box us the way he offered to box some other critics. I'll take him <laughs> up on it. He won that fight, though. He beat the critic's ass. That's a critic. Yeah, that's not surprising. But anyway, yes, we will be, I think on the website, we will be listing this order very soon. You'll understand. But just know that we'll be starting with the early classics, classic games anyway, not classic movies, but (laughs) Super Mario Brothers, Double Dragon, and so on. And eventually, yeah, we'll get to all the way to Angry Birds and Hitman. We'll be covering, I think it'll be all told somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 films in the next probably 18 months. And if you want to go a little bit deeper with the games, it's not based on an arcade game, so it's not really part of the series, but for our patrons, the Easter egg kind of show we're doing to start everything off, The Wizard, the 1989 Nintendo commercial. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, not really a film, more a commercial. Yeah, I keep wanting to warn people, not Wizard of Oz. You're like, oh, I love that movie. (laughs) You don't love this movie. This was a very little (laughs) film that I was, I, I never saw. Come on, Fred Savage. 
Everyone loves Fred Savage. If you were a kid of the 80s, you knew about it, but I'm not sure anybody would recognize it as a video game movie. But yes, it has the power glove, and they end up playing Super Mario 3 at the end of it. Spoiler alert! Ah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it will count enough to... It wouldn't fit in our retrospective of coin-op adaptations, but it is a funny way of beginning to talk about this series. And so, yes, we will be doing that for January patrons. And this Friday... The last leg of our donation drive starts for Platinum Level, the Jeepers Creepers Trilogy. Because, you know, in the middle of the Me Too movement, we love a good hot-button topic. (laughs) Nothing controversial here, but please know ahead of time, I advise people to read up on it. And if it feels like a conversation you want to hear, does get a little spicy. And if you want to hear it, you can find the donation drive at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, don't worry about it. I still love you. Okay. Wow. I'm glad you like my comedic movie. Exactly how I intended it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. Um, well, I guess I better be going. Uh, I'll just talk to you guys later. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. God, why did you do this to me? Why? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. I show them. I record everything. There you'll find podcast film reviews including Troll 2, Eraserhead, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, The Garbage Pail Kids Movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, Jupiter Ascending, and more. I just like to watch you guys. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Sometimes they're just too smart. Sometimes they're flat out stupid. Other times they're just evil. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Wait, you, you have the money to make this? I have, it's no problem. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are reviews of all the Quentin Tarantino films, including Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Jackie Brown, and Pulp Fiction. With podcasts on the Jurassic Park movies, the Alien films, Planet of the Apes, War of the Worlds, Poltergeist, and more, find them all at Now Playing's Podbean page and in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives. You have my money, right? Yeah, it's coming. It'll be here in a few minutes. What do you mean it's coming, Penny? Where's my money? You can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lord of Illusions, Lego Batman, Hook, Monster Trucks, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Isn't it fabulous? Anything for my princess. (laughs) Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. You can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. So I come back to get it, you know, and I pretend that I need a book, you know, I'm not looking for my book. Want to take part in the discussion? 
Join the now playing hosts at our forums, where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. Yeah, I'll let you know how it is, baby. Fast. Maybe you can join me someday. Maybe I will. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, sure, I can come, but I don't know if I'll bring anybody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Hi, Doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Welcome to my planet, Greg. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. If you think I'm tired today, wait till you see me tomorrow. Now playing Credit Narration by Brock. I'm glad you're listening to your mother. Nobody else listens to me. You're probably right about that, Mom. The film discussed in this podcast and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film analyzed herein. Now Playing Podcast is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film series. Tell me everything! You have no idea what kind of trouble you're in here, do you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You're right. <laughs> I know. I am right. Don't worry about those fuckers. You're a good man. Drink and let's have some fun. Now Playing Podcast is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why? It's over. God, forgive me. Good night, Johnny. Chip, 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 chip. I realized Marjorie and I must have a thing. We saw Why Him Last Christmas Disaster Artist this Christmas. We have a Franco Christmas tradition. Chip, 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 chip. Insidious? Insidious? Insidious. I don't know what they're calling this one. Chip, 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 chip. They buy their equipment and hire a professional crew, including script supervisor Sandy Shaclair, Shaclair, I think. Shaclair, Shaclair. Shaclair, yeah, there should be a vowel somewhere at the beginning. (laughs) That's not, it throws me off. Including shit. (laughs) Let's just call him Sandy. (laughs) Yeah, script super, can't even say that. Yeah, I know. I just said ship, shit. Ship strooper shiper. <laughs> I just said shit supervisor, which in the room is actually right. <laughs> What's his job? Chip, 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 chip. Hold on. Let's call. Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to call right now. See what happens. Let me look up that number. You got to look up the one, the, the number that they did for the movie. It's the exact same. Yeah. Is it the exact same? Okay. Yeah. I read that James Franco had started answering that phone. This is going to be like uh, Geraldo opening up the Al Capone vault. <laughs> Nah. Oh, busy. All right. We'll try again after recommends. <laughs> <laughs> so many people calling it, I guess. Cheep, 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 cheep. We are starting the now playing arcade. Do, 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 do.
Dude. Put another quarter in the coin op, baby, because <laughs> every video game, be they created for your Playboy, your Playboy. <laughs> Playboy. <laughs> rather. That's a very different episode of Now Playing. Yeah, that's a game that. <laughs> I can't stop playing. Yeah. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. Super Mario Brothers, Double Dragon, and so on. And eventually, yeah, we'll get to Angry Birds and... Oh. What's what's another late one? How about the new Pokemon film that was just announced? No, no, live we're, not action. Doing, we're not doing... It's no, live action we're with not Ryan Reynolds. It. We're not doing it. We have to do Pokemon God. with Ryan Reynolds. Some of those Pokemon movies came out in theaters. That's not a... That's like a... No, it's a game. That's a whole lifestyle thing. That doesn't count. No, it started as a game. <laughs> As a video game? Yeah. Yes, Game Boy. Before everything else? Yeah. What What if I get epilepsy? I can't watch those things. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the TV episode. Yeah. Mm. We can do the Ryan Reynolds live action one. I don't feel good about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank your stars Arnie's not making you do all the cartoon movies. Chip, 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 chip. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week... Don't worry about it. I still love you. Your wife is getting better. <laughs> <laughs>